delighted to have you guys here with us today. I just want to reiterate those announcements Cohen just made. In your bulletin, there's actually a flyer about what's going on with Resurrection Sunday. Um, a breakfast at 8.30, the service is at 9.45, 15 minutes earlier, with the night hunt afterward, as he mentioned. You can bring your eggs actually to the church offices during the week, or bring them next Sunday with candy and so forth, and we'll do like a little egg stuffing party maybe uh, uh, sometime during the week. So that's something that we wanted to make note of, as well as vertical worship, as he already said. It's on Tuesday night. Um, we've done this several times now. And one of the unique things we want to do this time is really focus on our mosaic small groups. Uh, mosaics really are, are going to be driving what's behind vertical worship. And if you're, if you're not part of a small group, uh, we'd love for you to come Tuesday night, get to see some other people who are part of mosaic small groups, uh, and maybe connect with them and, and, and visit their group. We have groups on Monday nights, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Sundays. So just about every day of the week, um, we have mosaic groups that meet, your Bible study groups. Uh, we're all going to get together, everyone in the church, on Sunday, on, on Tuesday, to worship the Lord together. It'll be from 7 to 8.30, and child care will be provided. So, it'll be an exciting time to, to do that. Also in your bulletin are some prayer requests uh, with different needs in our church body. I'm going to pray for those right now as we, before we open God's word together. So, would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, the psalmist writes in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, you are majestic. God, you are the only God. There are no others. And you deserve all the praise and all the glory. And God, so far in the service, we've, we've tried to give you that. Imperfectly, um, through distractions, through the things in our minds, we just we, we want to put those aside and just worship you. So Lord, we've done that in song, we've done that over scripture reading, we've done that in offering. And Lord, now we come before you in prayer. And we know there are various needs, God. Uh, many more than I will even speak today. And we want to commit these to you, Lord. We pray for Barbara Mudo, who's in the hospital. And um, not a lot of answers as to why she's weak and fatigued and short of breath. And Lord, uh, we do pray for your hand upon her, your healing hand. We pray for clarity for the doctors to understand her test results and to know how to best care for her. I pray that we as a church would uplift her in prayer and encourage her. Lord, we pray for others um, who have similar needs and are waiting for just results and waiting for clarity. We pray for Tanya Pacheco whose iron levels are low. We pray for Bentoro, for clarity as well, for doctors as they uh, <clears throat> really look at what's, what's going on with his heart that's caused him these different um, irregular heartbeats. And Father, we pray for our sister Angie Leatherwood, who found out this week she needs a kidney transplant. Lord, you know uh, the many fears that come with that. And I pray for our sister Angie, that you would encourage her. I thank you for her love for you, God. It's so evident. And for the ways that you've upheld her, God, and strengthened her faith. I pray for Chuck, that he could be that tender warrior to her, that rock of faith in you, yet tender to comfort her. And I pray for Edwin and Jasmine as well. And just for them as a family, Lord, that the Leatherwoods would call out to you and wait upon you for your timing as they're just entering a new season of, of different, uh, a different pace for them. So we, we commit them to you, Lord. 
Lord, we open your word right now. We want to hear from you. God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, God, that you would do your work in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that in fifth grade, I had a purple pair of jeans. Bright purple. Barney purple. I was in fifth or sixth grade, and uh, I thought it was the coolest thing. Because around that time, there was a particular clothing line that was in style. It was called Cross Colors. And it seemed to be that the philosophy of this clothing line is the brighter and louder, the cooler it was. And I know some of you had orange and blue and green and yellow jackets that you wore to school, right? So I had my purple pair of jeans, my bright purple Barney pair of jeans. I thought it was the coolest thing. And you know, they weren't real cross colors, but they were close enough to fool anybody. And people would look at our clothing and they, they, could, they could tell oftentimes what we're wearing. Some of you ladies, you see a nice leather bag, a purse. You like the colors, it's really stylish. And you look closely and you see the letters LV on it. And you know it's a Louis Vuitton, you know. And many of these marketing companies have so well marketed their brand. You see a symbol and you know what the company is. You see a style and you know who makes it. And as I got to thinking about that, I came to realize the same ought to be true of those who are Christians. That people look, up, look at us and they can tell where we come from and who we are about and what we are about. Not that they walk by us and they smell a perfume or cologne. Not that they look at our shoes and see a swish or a jump man or a logo on our polo or a name on our jeans. But they look at our lives and they see a godly character. People of integrity, people of conviction, people who live by a standard that God has placed. That they can look upon us and say, we know who they are about. And yet so oftentimes, Christians are accused of being hypocritical. And oftentimes that criticism is on point. You say you believe one thing, yet you constantly are doing another. And we can think about that. Why is it that we find so often that we are inconsistent with our lives with reference to what we believe? And we can think of a lot of reasons why that's the case. One of the reasons that I'm confident of has to do with a lack of proper understanding about God's grace. And then a lack of understanding about this salvation, this gospel, this good news that Jesus died for us and rose again to give us life. When we have a wrong understanding of salvation, it reflects in the way we live. Because what we believe reflects the way that we live. And the way we live is inconsistent and something's wrong with what we're believing. And that's the case that we find in the book of Titus. That so often Christians have this wrong perspective of salvation. And Paul is giving clarity about our salvation. This good news that Jesus died to give us eternal life. And he rose from the dead to have victory over the grave. I think oftentimes 
with, with reference to salvation, this is our misunderstanding. We think of it as a past event. Many of us think of it as a past event. Something that happened that changed me from the life I used to live. God forgave me 15 years ago. And we think of salvation as a past event. And it's true, but then it has no bearing on our present. And the other extreme is to think of it only something in the future. You know, when I die, I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. That's my salvation. And that's a true aspect, but that's not the whole picture. Well, we're going to see in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, that our salvation has a bearing on how we live our lives in the present. That there is a past, present, and future tense for the salvation that we confess. That when Jesus died and bore the wrath of the Father to give us eternal life, He forgave us for our sins, but He empowered us for life today and gave us a hope for tomorrow. And that's what I want us to look at in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We're not going to look so much at what we are, ought to do, although we will talk about that, or how to live the Christian life. But we're going to look at why do we do it. If you remember, Pastor Ralph preached last week from Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. And there was a message for older men, older women, younger women, younger men, than slaves. And many of those messages for them was to be self-controlled, not be argumentative, not be addicted to wine, to be people of character. And we're left with the question, how can I do that? How can I be that person, knowing the flaws in my own heart? And what Paul lays out here are four life-changing, I'm going to say, four life-changing truths that when we embrace them and believe them, they will affect the way that we live our lives. Now, saying something's life-changing already almost always sets it up for failure. Anybody ever tell you, I read this book, it changed my life, you read it and you're like, what did it do that for you? I, I don't get it. Because they tell you, you changed your life and already, I mean, you've got the highest bar set. But I'm going to set that bar. And I'm going to tell you that it's life-changing or life-transforming, not because I'm preaching it, not, not, nothing about today in particular, but because of what it is. It's the message that changes lives. And the first thing that we see from this life-transforming truth is that God took the initiative to save us. And that makes a difference in the way we live our lives. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. It says, for. The word for points us back to verse 10. And verse 10 had this remarkable statement that we can adorn ourselves, we can actually wear sound doctrine or good theology. It's like you wake up, you put on good theology, and then it affects the way you live. And here Paul says, well, this is what, what good theology is like. God took the initiative. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God took the initiative. His grace appeared. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God's grace is evident. God's grace towards people who loved Him, and even His grace towards people who didn't love Him was seen. But Paul has something different in mind here. He says God's grace appeared. It became manifest. And I believe what Paul is speaking of here is none other than Jesus Christ coming in the form of man. That when God saw fit, Jesus came. The grace of God appeared. 
and brought salvation. There's nothing we can do to make God come. We were dead in sin, but God in His grace extended Himself toward us. Now this idea of us being dead in sin is in verse 14. Jump down there. It talks about Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. You know, apart from Jesus, we are all slaves to sin. We're just slaves to sin. The best we have is, 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 is awful. We're corrupted in our being. You know, not long ago, I bring a cup of coffee to work just about every day. And I had this travel mug on my desk and, and I drank it. And I drank half my, my travel mug that day. And it was a Friday. And I came back to work the following Monday. And I brought a different mug to work, placed it on my desk, went to drink and picked up the wrong mug. And yeah, I got a mouthful of three-day-old coffee. And yes, I make it with milk. Yeah. But that's how our good works are before God. It's yuck. And that's how we were as slaves to sin. Just this morning on, on the train, I, I, I had my hand on the handrail. I got a handful of grease. And I'm, I'm horrible. My poor son. I, you know, just like a typical little kid, I wiped it on my leg. But I didn't even realize I had grease. And now I've got a black streak on my khaki pants. And there's a stain there. And that's what sin has done. It stains us. And we, had, we could do nothing to reach out to God. Yet God in His grace initiated salvation for us. Now many of us have a hard time understanding this because what this does is teach us about God's love. Some of us, from the time we were young, were told we were good for nothing. Perhaps you were told you were a loser. You were taken advantage of and told it was your fault. You were lied to. And over the years, your, self, your self-worth, your self-identity began to shrink. And you thought very little of yourself. And when you hear that God took the initiative to love you, when you were stained, when you were yuck, it's hard for you to embrace that and say, God, really? I mean, you, you know me? I, I, I'm, a, I'm a loser. And that's God's grace. Because it says, no, you're not. That God's grace appeared and came to you and brings salvation. And many of us have to come to grips with that. That the God of eternity, the God of this universe, loves you. He loves you. He loves you. No matter what people have told you, no matter what you've done, no matter how stained you were. Isaiah tells us, though your sin was like scarlet, I will make you white as snow, says the Lord. And the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all of us who will believe in Him. And that's God's grace in its fullest. Now it says God's grace extends to all men. Now this is not saying that, that everyone will be saved. You know, universalism, that's what this belief is, that everyone at the end will be saved, is a teaching that's been around for some time. And it's very counter to Scripture. Jesus himself had the most glaring descriptions of hell. When he tells them, cast the wicked servant out to the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That came from the lips of Jesus. And throughout the Gospels and throughout the Bible, we see descriptions of hell. And it's a real place. But God has extended His grace and offered salvation to all who would believe in Him. And it starts with His grace 
and us who have faith in Him. You know, some of us today may not even know that grace of God. You don't know His love. And maybe today is that day for you to embrace God's love for you. To know that He reached out to you when you had nothing to offer. That's life transforming. That's life changing. You won't be the same. And when we think, how do we live lives that are above reproach? Well, first of all, we look to Jesus. We look to God and say, you, gave, you offered your grace when I had nothing. God, I want to give you all of me out of gratitude. Well, the second thing Paul shows us, the second life-transforming truth is that God's grace teaches us how to live in the present. So it's not that God saves us and gives us new life, but then he even instructs us how to live this life. I titled the sermon Between Two Worlds. Because again, as I mentioned, so often we think of salvation as the only thing that happened in the past or something that's only in the future. But no, God calls us to live here and now between those two worlds. And if you notice in verse 12, it says that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. That's the here and now. So God in His grace has saved us, but God in His grace now trains us to walk in a way that honors Him. Just think about how God's grace trains us. When we give our life to Jesus, we now have a new example for living. Jesus, the perfect one. We follow His example. We have a new way to live. We're being instructed. We're getting new standards as we have here in Titus. God's given us a new mind that transformed our thinking. He's allowed us the ability and given us the strength to renounce sin and say, I'm not going to do that. He's given us a new teacher, the Holy Spirit who indwells all of us. So the grace of God trains us then to renounce ungodliness. This word renounce is really fascinating to me because it shows up a lot in the New Testament. From what I could see, this was the only incident where it comes telling us to renounce sin. Most of the other occurrences are talking about those who renounce Jesus. When Peter denied Jesus, the word for deny is renounce. And frequently we see how Paul tells us, don't deny Jesus. Don't renounce him. But here we're told to renounce sin. And I almost get this sense that really what Paul is laying out is a one or the other and not both. We've got to choose who our God will be. Will we live as slaves to sin Or will we live as slaves to God? We have to renounce one. We cannot embrace both. And he tells us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is whatever is contrary to God. God ought to be the center of our lives. And whatever takes us off of that center is ungodliness. And worldly passions, passions themselves are not wrong. God created passions. What's that adjective worldly? It changes it. It mars it. And it's actually worldly lusts, worldly desires that Paul is telling us to stay away from. And he says, say no to those, but then say yes to three things. To be self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. I think when it comes down to what Paul is telling us as believers to be is to be active and not passive in our lives. 
It's so easy to be passive about things. Be passive about the way we dress. Be passive about the music we listen to. Be passive about the movies we watch. Passive about our relationships. And yet, if we're passive, we're not engaged, and we're subject to temptation, and then we're also subject to worldly passions and ungodliness. Now, this is the first time I've ever preached the sermon, the same sermon twice in one location. I preached from this text two years ago. And uh, when I preached that text, I remember God just really uh, put on my heart to pause at this point. And I'm going to pause here again. And I'm pretty much going to say the same exact thing I said July of 2009. Because it's something that we need to constantly hear. And there are things that need to be addressed as us as Christians to know how to live upright, godly, and self-controlled lives in this generation. So the first thing I want to address, uh, and they're all going to use the letter M, because that's just easy to remember, is, is modesty. It's modesty. One of the unfortunate things is our culture dictates clothing, doesn't it? You go to stores, they're going to sell what's in style, not necessarily What's modest? And what we need to be, and if you ladies need to be, is active in your clothing purchases and not passive. To think as you try on, how do the clothing that how does the clothing that I wear reflect the God that I serve? Because what you believe reflects the way you live. How do you live in between these two worlds? Is by being active, saying God. Is this outfit honoring to you? Does this honor you, my Lord? I love you enough, God, to say, even though it's cute, I'm not going to buy it. Although it matches, it's not worth the cost. So we need to be active in what we wear. Modesty. Be active in music. I'm not a person who typically likes all types of music. I can handle it. I do listen to Gregorian chant, truthfully, and hip-hop. And some of you guys just love music. And I think it's great because God puts that in your heart, to love the artistry. Music is powerful. It engages our hearts in ways other things can't. I can preach my heart out, but sometimes a song will speak to you in a way more powerful than any word I can say. And that's just the beauty of music. But with that beauty comes great danger, doesn't there? What's on your playlist? What do you let in your ears? Think of what our kids learn in God's kids and in kids in motion. Because I comes home, she sings, Be careful little ears what you hear. And yet somewhere, we don't need to sing that song anymore. Somewhere that standard is only for the twos and threes and fours and fives, but not the twenty threes, twenty fours and twenty fives. And we need to be people who are active. What am I listening to? Does what I listen to raise within me godly affections? Do they push me away from or toward God? And we need to be active in that. And you discern it in prayer, saying, God, what do you want me to listen to? I'm not going to put any standard, because we, that's what we often want, is to have some sort of you know, benchmark. Because, but then we become legalists, and we say, we've we got to keep that benchmark. But... Seek God in these things. Say, God, what do you want me to do to honor you? So we see modesty in music, but what about movies? Uh, it always strikes me how ratings really are insignificant these days. 
You know, when we do movies on the lawn, I have the hardest time finding a movie to play that I know won't offend somebody. It's almost impossible. It has to be G. It has to be G. And even sometimes that doesn't cut it. Um, I mean, rarely will I find a PG movie. The innuendo in so many kids' movies is just outrageous. And PG-13, I don't want my kids seeing that when they're 13. You know, and again, we can't just say, oh, we're not going to watch that rating or that rating or that. We need to be discerning, be active. Use websites to help you screen movies. Screenit.com. What's it called? Plugged in. Use movie screening sites like this. Screen your movies. We want godly character, don't we? To live upright lives. So much of what we watch doesn't honor God. And I said it last time, two years ago, and I'll say it now. When we watch and look upon nudity in movies, how does that grow you in holiness? How, how does that help you love your spouse more? How does that help you prepare yourself to be that single person who honors God? We need to set these standards, set the bar high. We're supposed to be other than the world, dear brothers and sisters. And I know people disagree with me sometimes, but I believe this is what the Bible teaches. We need to set that bar at a right place and, and seek God and say, God, give me wisdom as to what I watch, to what I hear, to how I dress. Another one I want to address, address is marriage. In our culture, boy, has that just fallen off the map. I saw a red-eye newspaper headline that said many people are choosing not to marry and just um, cohabitate. It struck me uh, in, fe- in January. Erica and I went to a, a premarital con- uh, counseling training uh, called Prepare and Rich, and there's about a dozen people there, all of us in church ministry. And I was struck to realize only three of us in that room believe that the sexual relationship is only for men and women in the context of marriage. Only three of us. And there were other pastors in that room. And they called us, those of you who hold the traditional view of marriage. And I wish I screamed at the time, I should have, and I regret it, that it's not, it's not traditional. It's biblical. And we need to see how our culture twists and turns God's standards for marriage. And say, no, 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 that's, that's, not, what, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to live by what the Bible teaches. I'm going to live by the standard that God has set. Some people may call this legalism. But legalism, if you, if you know the definition, I'm going to use C.J. Mahaney's because it's a great one. He said it's seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. In other words, a legalist is anyone who behaves as if they can earn God's approval and forgiveness through personal performance. That's not what Paul's saying here, and that's not what I'm saying. We don't earn God's approval by living in godliness. We live in godliness because we love God. That's not legalism. That's love. And that's a life-transforming truth about the gospel. That God has empowered us to discern these things. Because apart from him, we were powerless to do it. We didn't know what pleased God. Let alone even cared what pleased God. 
But when God's grace appeared, He brought salvation for all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present generation. So we need to often untrain ourselves and let God's word and God's grace retrain us in a way that honors Him. The third life-transforming truth is that Jesus is coming back. Look at verse 13. As we're living in between these two worlds, in this present age, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what I find so remarkable about the hope of Jesus' return is that it is always, every time it shows up in the Scriptures, closely connected with lifestyle. The best example is 1 John 2, verses... uh, 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And this is what it says. And now, little children, abide in Him, in Christ. Remain in Christ. So that when He appears, that's His second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. That some might be ashamed when Jesus returns. It's something I think many of us haven't considered. Verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Does the world understand us? And then verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's the future. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. And then this statement. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. The hope that Jesus is coming back has a purifying effect upon us. It changes us. That Jesus could come this afternoon. What does that mean? mean, I'm I'm going to live sold out for him. He could come back tomorrow or next week. We don't know when, but he's coming back. And we're waiting for this blessed hope. And it's blessed because when Jesus comes, God is present among us. He's going to come and make His dwelling among us. It's blessed because God's glory is going to be revealed, Paul says. The glory of our great God. His his perfections, His holiness, His beauty. We're going to look upon it. What a beautiful picture it will be. We were lived... We, we, we are alive to reflect God's glory. And one day, that will come to a climax. And we shall see Him just as He is. It's a blessing. And it's also judgment. It's also a curse. For those who are in Christ, it's a joyous time. And those who are apart, it's not. But it is a blessing for those who have that hope in Him. And lastly, it's also when God's promises come to fruition. All His promises. A new body. No more sin. No more pain. No more death. That's a life-transforming truth that Jesus is coming back. But notice what it says about Jesus. Look at the description Paul gives him. He calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there are those who don't want to believe that Jesus is God. And they say, well, this is talking about two different people. Our great God and also our Savior are going to come. And it has two problems. First of all, the grammar to this passage doesn't allow for it. It just doesn't allow for it. 
The subject is our great God and our Savior is referring to the same person, Jesus Christ. Secondly, nowhere else in the Bible has ever said that when Jesus comes, God's going to come and these are two separate kind of things. You know why it doesn't say it? Because Jesus is God. And Paul says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back. He is God and he is coming back. And throughout the Bible, we are told that Jesus is God. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And that's remarkable because of what happens before. He says, the Father has control of all things, and I am one with the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God, the exact representation, and he holds the world with the power of his word. See, Jesus is God. And why this is significant in this third life-transforming truth because it leads us to our fourth one. Because only God can do what Jesus did. He redeemed us so that we belong to him. Look at verse 14. Referring to Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus redeemed us, which I already stated means that we were slaves to sin. That was our position. We were slaves to sin, but Jesus purchased us with his blood. And now we are slaves to God, which is a joyous place. Look at uh, Titus 1, verses 1 through 4, if you remember what it means to be a slave to God. He's our master, and he is good. But Jesus also purified us for himself, for his own possession, that we would belong to him, that we would be his church, his bride. I love that picture. You know, in in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, or chapter 6 it is, where it says that, that that the church is the bride of Christ, that the church is his bride. This is what enraged people about the Da Vinci Code when it implied that, that Jesus had a, a, a love relationship with Mary Magdalene. Jesus already has a wife. Her name's the church. And he died to purchase her and to purify her for himself. And Jesus is upright and we are his bride. And that just is, is an identity that we cling to. No matter what people have told us who we are, no matter how they've demeaned you, spoken down to you, when you place your hope and your faith and trust in Jesus, you become part of the bride of Christ. You belong to him. You're his treasured possession. And our response is there in that last phrase of verse 14. We're then zealous for good works. I think this is what Paul was trying to get at when he started this passage. Remember he talked about adorning ourselves with sound doctrine, putting it on, putting on good theology, putting on biblical truth so that it affects the way we live? Well, here he's been laying out biblical truth. That God initiated salvation by his grace. That God has empowered us to live in the present time. That Jesus is coming back. That Jesus redeemed us for himself. This is sound doctrine that we must cling to and wear because then it will reflect itself in our lives and we will be zealous for good works. Good works is the fruit of this salvation, of this hope. It is not the pursuit of the hope. And that's been something that's always been true of the evangelical or Protestant church. This is what got Martin Luther so bothered 
in the Middle Ages. When there was this understanding that we did good works to earn God's grace. Yet Paul here says, God's grace appeared. And then we are zealous for good works because of it. And that's his call for us, the church. That's what the gospel-saturated life looks like. That we embrace God's grace by saying, God, I know you loved me when I was unlovable. And God, you've empowered me by your grace and by your Holy Spirit to now live in a way that honors you. And I know you're coming back and that hope purifies me. And I find joy knowing that I belong to you. And God, now I'm zealous to do whatever it takes to please you. Zealous for good works. I just want to live for you, Jesus. That's the gospel-saturated life. That's living between two worlds. And that's what Paul's message for us is today. What I want us to really come away with today is that our salvation speaks to our yesterdays and our tomorrows but it speaks to our todays. Will we go forth as a church and live for God, enjoying who we are in Him, zealous for good works? Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You that You reached out when we turn our back on you. When we were hostile toward you, oh Lord, you loved us. And oh God, I pray that we would take these things to heart, that we would not settle for status quo, not settle for worldly passions, but live upright, godly lives, oh Lord, for your glory and as a response to our joy for being children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to invite prayer counselors to come forward. If you want to be prayed with, would you have a, a prayer need of any sort? Come, I know they're eager to pray with you as we close in this final <laughs>